0: JD Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Donald Trump's presidential immunity claim today rejected by three federal judges. The lead starts right now. A major blow to citizen Trump as the D.C. Federal Appeals Court denies his presidential immunity defense. A conservative former judge is taking us inside today's ruling, plus his take on what might play out if citizen Trump takes his case to the U.S. Supreme Court, where he appointed three of the justices, and frustration from Capitol Hill all the way to the border with a bipartisan immigration bill on the brink of collapse. Independent Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema helped write the bill. She'll be here and we'll talk to her about what, if any, options are left. Plus, the mother of a school shooter in Michigan found guilty today of involuntary manslaughter. How this case might set a precedent nationwide. Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our law and justice lead and a massive legal defeat for Donald Trump. Today, a federal appeals court in DC unanimously ruled that Mr. Trump is not immune from prosecution for alleged crimes he may have committed during his presidency as he attempted to overturn the results of the 2020 election. The three federal judges strongly writing in their decision that, quote, for the purpose of this criminal case, former President Trump has become citizen Trump with all of the defenses of any other criminal defendant. But any executive immunity that may have protected him while he served as president no longer protects him against this prosecution. The three female judges, two appointed by Democrats, one by a Republican, went even further than that today, however, repeatedly eviscerating citizen Trump's behavior after the 2020 election as an attack on American institutions. The judge is writing, quote, former President Trump's alleged efforts to remain in power despite losing the 2020 election were, if proven, an unprecedented assault on the structure of our government He allegedly injected himself into a process in which the president has no role the counting and certifying of the electoral college votes thereby undermining constitutionally established procedures and the will of the congress unquote unsurprisingly donald trump and his legal team are signaling that they're going to appeal to the u.s supreme court potentially with the former president writing on his social media platform that quote If immunity is not granted to a president, every president that leaves office will be immediately indicted by the opposing party. Without complete immunity, a president of the United States would not be able to properly function, unquote. It's odd, one might observe, that the Republic has somehow managed to survive more than 200 years without this being an issue until Donald Trump tried to overturn the election. CNN's Paula Reid starts off our coverage with a closer look at today's ruling and what comes next as we move even closer to the 2024 presidential
2: election.
3: In a unanimous, historic ruling, three judges on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals rejecting former President Trump's claim that he has absolute immunity from criminal prosecution.
4: The attack on our nation's capital on January 6th, 2021, was an unprecedented assault on the seat of American democracy.
3: Special counsel Jack Smith charged him with four federal counts related to his efforts to overturn the 2020 election.
4: As described in the indictment, it was fueled by lies. Lies by the defendant targeted at obstructing a bedrock function of the U.S. government.
3: Trump has repeatedly insisted he was acting within the scope of his duties as president and therefore cannot be tried.
2: A president of the United States has to be free and clear of mind And you can't be worrying about something where you're doing the right thing. But if it doesn't work out, you're going to end up in prison.
3: The judges on Tuesday batted down that argument and slammed Trump's alleged efforts to stay in power, despite losing the election, as unpresidential and an assault on American institutions. It would be a striking paradox if the president, who alone is vested with a constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed Were the sole officer capable of defying those laws with impunity. In a statement today, the Trump campaign argued that without complete immunity, no president could properly perform their duties for fear of retribution. If immunity is not granted to a president, every future president who leaves office will be immediately indicted by the opposing party. But the court also rejected any suggestion that prosecuting Trump in this case would have a chilling effect on future leaders. Past presidents have understood themselves to be subject to impeachment and criminal liability, at least under certain circumstances, so the possibility of chilling executive action is already in effect. Trump is vowing to appeal, and the Supreme Court will likely have the final say. The justices, though, were already said to hear arguments on Thursday in another case with huge implications for Trump on whether his actions after the 2020 election disqualify him from the 2024 ballot. Trump is expected to appeal to the Supreme Court, and while this is a novel constitutional question, the even bigger issue here is timing and how long it will take the court to indicate what it's going to do, because the longer they take, the less likely it is that this case will go before the November 2024 election. And Jake, it is expected if Trump is reelected that he would, luckily through his attorney general, have both of Jack Smith's criminal cases against him dismissed.
1: Paul Reed, thanks so much. Let's bring in conservative former federal judge and legal scholar J. Michael Ludig, who has been outspoken against Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Judge Ludig, always good to see you. So this three-judge panel is made up of two judges appointed by Joe Biden and one appointed by George H.W. Bush. You, you know the conservative judge, Judge Henderson. Um, what does it say that this decision was unanimous amongst all three of them?
5: Well, there, uh, Jake, thank you for having me on this afternoon. The, uh, the, the party uh, uh, political party uh, affiliations of the judges is utterly irrelevant to their decision, as it is to the decisions of all judges all the way to the Supreme Court. But today's decision was an historic decision. It is a landmark uh, uh, interpretation of the presidential powers under the Constitution of the United States the uh, former president uh, had made the argument that he was absolutely immune Mm -hmm. from federal prosecution uh, uh, for any crimes that he may have committed while he was president and today's decision the court uh, rejected that argument uh, straight down the line Uh, and uh, uh, it it was not uh, an, an untimely decision I know that there had been a lot of criticism of the court up to today that it was uh, dallying and taking its time at the expense of the the trial that was scheduled for March. I never thought the court was was dallying. Mm-hmm. I thought the court would rule about when it did, and uh, and I also believed that the court would rule as it did today. There has never been an argument, uh, Jake, uh, that the that the a President is absolutely immune from criminal prosecution right. for acts that he committed uh, when he was uh, president.
1: So in one of the most striking lines of today's ruling, the judges write that quote for the purpose of this criminal case, pre- former President Trump has become citizen Trump with all of the defenses of any other criminal defendant, unquote. What's the importance of using that language about citizen Trump?
5: It, it is actually a reference to a a, a statement made once by our our founding fathers, repeated by uh, justices of the Supreme Court, where they said that uh, once a president returns from being president, he returns to uh, his life as an ordinary citizen of the United States. Uh, Jake, uh, I know that there's a lot of concern about the, the timing of this decision even today. Uh, the 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 court of appeals specifically uh, instructed that its mandate would issue mm-hmm. six days from now on February twelfth, unless the former president had uh, sought a stay from the Supreme Court of the United States within that time frame, and if he had the court of appeals provided that it would its stay would continue until the supreme court acted on that application for stay right now none of us knows what the supreme court will do with this case i believe the supreme court will ultimately deny review of this case mm. so that the, uh, the the trial can proceed as expeditiously uh, as possible
1: all right, former Judge J. Michael Ludig, thank you, as always, for your time and expertise. Let's discuss this now with CNN's Joan Biscupic and Jamie uh, Gangal. Joan, let's start with uh, what Judge Ludig and I were just discussing. You've literally written books on the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, do you agree with his prediction that the U.S. Supreme Court is ultimately just going to defer to whatever the U.S. Uh, Court of Appeals decides? It's
6: close. It's a very close call. This was a very strong opinion. Uh, I think it's important that it was unanimous. I, I think it was important actually, that there were Republican and Democratic appointees on this. And I think it hewed completely to past precedent and Donald Trump has never had strong arguments in this area, but it's the US Supreme Court that has the right to be the final arbiter of what is in the constitution. And there might be some justices who think that they should do it. They also might be some justices who think that they shouldn't give Donald Trump any kind of, in their mind, short shrift here. Uh, It takes four justices to grant a case. It would take essentially five to try to expedite this the way uh, they're asking. And uh, I think in the end it will probably produce a denial, but I'm not I'm not 100 percent certain just because Mm of uh, how it plays out. But let me tell you what uh, our audiences can start to look for. By Monday, Donald Trump will have to have made his initial filing to the Supreme Court. Then the court will probably give us a schedule of when uh, Jack Smith's response is due on behalf of the Department of Justice, on behalf of the United States. Probably his lawyers are writing that right now because they will want to keep the pressure on so that if there's a chance for a trial to happen this spring, it can. And then Donald Trump will, of course, be able to to, uh, have a reply to however Jack Smith responds. The justices next meet in private on February 16th. There's a chance that they could actually take it up that soon, but I would think something of this magnitude actually might take a couple weeks for them to decide whether they're Mm -hmm. going to take it. And then, to Judge Ludig's point about whether this is going to be an outright denial, there might be one or two justices who dissent from that, and they might actually be thinking about writing something. And that's the last thing that John Roberts would want is for someone to dissent and say, Donald Trump is not getting his fair day
1: in court. Mm. And, Jamie, Trump's argument today is that, quote, if immunity is not granted to a president, every president that leaves office will be immediately indicted uh, by the opposing party. Um, How strong of an argument do you think that is?
7: Well, I I think we should start by looking at presidents number one through 44. They clearly, it did not happen. They were not worried about it. Look, no former president has ever been indicted. No former president has ever been charged with, uh, with trying to overturn an election and a transfer of power. These judges flatly denied uh, Trump's claim that his criminal indictment would have a chilling effect. So I, I think you look at American history, you look at the judge's decision it is not an argument.
1: Right, I mean, Nixon might have been indicted, right, right. but but President Ford uh, pardoned Correct. him. Correct. Um, also, uh, Jamie, today House Speaker Johnson, Mike Johnson came out in support of Trump in this case. Right. He's saying Trump is being targeted for political purposes. If this moves forward, if Trump goes on trial and is possibly convicted, Um, Do you think that Republican support is gonna ever crumble away?
7: How many times do you get to ask me this (laughs) question? (laughs) They they wrote it down for me to ask you. I know
1: the answer, I know the answer.
7: We've just seen this over and over again for years now. Privately, uh, Republican elected officials say they wish he would go away. Publicly, they stand with him. And when we look at the base, when we look at the polls, Trump's base, has not moved one
1: bit. Yeah. There, and the Republican officials, many of them, are just terrified of the base, terrified of, A, losing an election, B, right. death threats the to t- themselves and their families.
7: The two words are power, keeping mm-hmm. power, and grift.
1: All right, thanks to both you, appreciate sure, it. Sure. On Capitol Hill right now, House Republicans are nearing a vote on whether to impeach the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, we're I gonna monitor have- that plus the collapsing deal that tried to do something on immigration, is there any chance it can be revived? I'm gonna ask Senator Kirsten Cinema, the independent from Arizona and one of the three lead negotiators of that legislation right after this break. In our politics lead, President Biden touting the bipartisan border deal while taking a clear shot at Republican lawmakers.
2: The reforms of this bill are essential We're making our border more orderly, more humane, and more secure. That's why the Border Patrol Union, which, by the way, endorsed Donald Trump in the 2020 election, endorses this bill. These are the people whose job it is to secure the border every single solitary day. They don't just show up for photo ops like some members of Congress.
1: Republican lawmakers are beginning to pull their support from the deal. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, said just a few hours ago that the bill will not become law. Just for a reminder, a quick reminder of how we got here, Republicans had insisted on changes to immigration policy that they be added to any package that included aid to Ukraine and Israel. So, Senate Democrats and one independent went along with that and created in a bipartisan way what the conservative Wall Street Journal editorial board today said was, quote, by any honest reckoning, the most restrictri- restic- restrictive migrant legislation in decades. They meant that as a compliment. And now Republicans are refusing to take yes for an answer. Donald Trump wants to use the border crisis as an election issue. And with us now to discuss Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, she's an independent and was one of the three lead negotiators on the, on the border deal. Senator, is your deal already dead?
8: Well, unfortunately, Jake, it appears that politics have overtaken practical policy uh, once again in Washington, D.C. You know, when my colleague said back in September that the border crisis was a national security imperative and must be paired with a solution to fight Putin, to, of course, um, stand with our allies in Israel and to stand with Taiwan, I stood up and said a wholehearted yes. You know, I'm a child of the border. It is my state that has been an unmitigated crisis for decades. And I agree, it is a national security crisis. And so, as you know, for the last four and a half months, I brought Republicans and Democrats together to form a real solution to address our border crisis. And unfortunately today, my colleagues in the United States Senate have decided that they don't actually want this solution and don't want to secure the border. And I'm disappointed. But i'm mostly disappointed jake for the folks back home because my state is still in crisis and will be tomorrow and the next day and the next day
1: you have said that you had, you asked uh, the senate majority leader democrat chuck schumer to, to push the vote to thursday um is that what you still want or or is that just off the table because republicans are signaling they're not going to do it
8: well yesterday some of my republican colleagues uh, told me that they would like a little more time to read the bill before getting onto the bill and having a robust amendment process and i agreed so i did ask leader schumer if he would consider pushing the vote a little bit later he agreed but unfortunately today senate republicans indicated that a delay isn't needed that they don't want to move forward on this bill
1: now we've reported on the show that the very conservative border patrol union is supportive of this legislation. They say it's not perfect, but it's a, it's a much better than status quo. Donald Trump, however, posted on Truth Social, "quote only a fool or a radical left Democrat would vote for this horrendous border bill. Don't be stupid, unquote. Um, how, how much of is he the problem? How much is his push to keep this as an issue for the election, which is what Senator Mitt Romney says uh, is the problem. How, how much of that is, is, what is uh, resulting in what happened today?
8: Well, Jake, I believe that each Senator has to take responsibility for his or her own decisions. And so, look, it doesn't matter what one candidate or the other says. What matters is what individual Senators choose to do. And I can tell you that I always choose to do what is right for Arizona. And that's why I've been partnering closely with Brandon Judd, the President of the Border Patrol Council. As you heard and have seen, they came out and supported this legislation because it will make a real difference in border communities experience every day. Our bill ends catch and release. It allows us to shut down the border during times of high flow, like today, and every other day this year. And so while some folks might wanna point blame to one person or the other, the reality is, Jake, is each of us senators is sent to this city and to the Capitol to do one thing, and that is to take votes, to make laws on behalf of our constituents. So we each bear the responsibility for analyzing this bill and making a decision. And as I've been saying to my colleagues in the last several days, take a look at the bill and then make a decision. Do you want to secure the border? And unfortunately, Jake, it sounds like a lot of folks, their answer is no.
1: So Iowa Republican Senator Joni Ernst said about this deal, quote, I'm very disappointed that so many of our members came out as a hard no before the legislation was even released. I wish we had given James Langford, who also worked with you on the bill, the benefit of the doubt to, late, to, to take a look at the text before we started speaking our opposition. But then she went on to say something along the lines of, but the, the political climate has made it so that, you know, having a vote on this is untenable. Um, and I'm just wondering what you think about that excuse, the idea that the political climate is now impossible to get this passed, as opposed to what you were just talking about, individual senators, you know, taking a vote on the merits of the legislation.
8: Well, Jake, you and I have had a conversation about the political climate before, and my position remains unchanged. You know, it's unfortunate that we are working in a Washington where individuals are more interested in their next primary, they're more interested in what the base wants to hear, and are frankly more interested in the politics of a situation rather than making good policy. Now, I I know I'm a little bit different than many of the folks here in the Senate, but I believe that it's our job to come here each day and work on behalf of what's right for our constituents. Now, Jake, for a lot of people, the border is a political issue, and they would rather have immigration and border not solved so they can keep talking about it. But I can promise you this, back home in Arizona, people in elected and important positions of both political parties came out immediately endorsing this bill, whether it be a county supervisor in Yuma, or the mayor of one of my small towns, or our governor, or our own sheriffs, because they understand that the politics might be easy for folks in other states, but in places like Arizona, an actual border state, it's not about the politics. It's about the damage that occurs every day from our failure to address this crisis.
1: There are conservatives who say even though they want border reforms, uh, the people who negotiated this bill just did this incorrectly. Eric Erickson said in a post that you misread the room. He writes, quote, close the border, That's what people say they want. They didn't ask for a multi-thousand page piece of legislation. (laughs) People have no faith that Congress can do small things competently. They sure as hell don't trust Congress to do big things competently, unquote. Now, okay, first of all, it's not thousands of pages, but it is a big piece of legislation. um, And I'm wondering what you you think of that criticism. Eric basically is saying, look, President Biden could take serious actions today to limit the number of migrants illegally crossing So why is this even needed?
8: Mm. Now, that's an important point, Jake, and I wanna address that specifically. There is no doubt that the Biden administration could be doing a much better job of securing our border. And folks have heard me criticize this administration time and time again over the last three years for their failure to appropriately address this crisis. But it is absolutely true that there are tools that our government needs to have through statute to do a better and more complete job. One of those things that we must do is change the asylum standard. Right now, it's much too easy to claim asylum, even if you have no legal right to it. Four out of five people who come to the border and claim asylum pass the initial screening right now. That's absurd, when only 15% of people ultimately gain asylum in our country. So we have to change that by statute. A second thing is closing the border. We had the authority during COVID to close the border under Title 42. As we know, a court ended that authority after the COVID pandemic ended. Our bill creates a new legal authority in statute that both allows and requires the government to shut down the border during times of heavy traffic. Those are just two examples of statutory changes that we have to give to this administration or a future administration in order for them to fully protect the border.
1: One of the points made by the Wall Street Journal uh, editorial board and and others is that in previous efforts to have immigration reform uh, during the Bush administration, uh, Bush Jr. and Obama, these conservative type uh, restrictions that are in your legislation were paired with things that progressives wanted, like a path to legal status for the Dreamers or things along those lines. And this time, the progressives didn't get anything. It was honestly just more restrictions and the wall street journal calls this the you know the most conservative something along the lines of the most conservative immigration compromise that they've seen in the last 20 years i'm just wondering like what what your response is when you hear people who voted for more previous previous more liberal uh immigration compromises i'm thinking of uh the gang of eight and senator marco rubio and senator lindsey graham now opposing something that is more conservative?
8: Well, Jake, this was not an immigration package. This was a border security package. And so the Wall Street Journal was correct when they said that this had the strictest migration policies that they've seen in decades. That is accurate because the crisis is so severe. As you know, in December, we saw thousands of individuals crossing illegally into Arizona every single day. And even just yesterday, over 6,500 individuals came through our ports of entry and between our ports of entry illegally just yesterday. So I have been reminding my colleagues that if my bill were law, none of that would be occurring because the border would be shut down right now. So we are in a very different situation than we've been in the past. This is a border security bill, not an immigration package. What is hard for me to understand, Jake, is why individuals have chosen, individual senators have chosen not to move forward on a package that they themselves have demanded, a package which creates, as you've said, some of the strictest migration policies in decades. And one could ask, what is the motivation here? I don't know what it is. But what I can tell you is this. We have a clear choice about whether or not to secure the border. And many colleagues have said today that they do not have an interest in doing so. But make no mistake, Jake, I'm going to ensure that we do take a vote on this piece of legislation. All senators will get to vote on whether or not they want to secure the border. And as an Arizonan who represents the border state facing the worst brunt of this crisis, I'm going to continue to remind my colleagues on both sides of the political aisle about the choice that we can make and can continue to make.
1: Do you think you can get, let's say, there if there are 50 Democrats plus you, can you get nine Republicans? I mean, Senator Mitt Romney says that the reason this is all happening is because Donald, Trump's want, Donald Trump wants this issue as an election issue. For November, he called it appalling what Trump is doing. I know you're reluctant to to blame this on trump but can you get nine republicans i mean susan collins lisa murkowski Mitt romney that's three maybe lindsey graham i mean are you counting is there a chance this could pass
8: you know uh, from what i heard after um, republicans had a conference lunch today they've decided not to move forward on this border security package and again i i i can't emphasize this enough jake each senator makes his or her her own decision we are elected by the people of our states to make decisions for our constituents So none of us are controlled by any one person or a candidate or a president. Each of us make a decision that is right for our constituents and we'll each be held accountable for that. Now, I will continue to urge my colleagues to be serious about taking a border deal when a significant conservative deal is on the table and each person will get to choose if they want to secure the border.
1: Independent Senator Kirsten Sinema from Arizona, thanks so much, appreciate it. Absolutely. We're following movement in the Middle East right now. Hamas has made a counter offer on a proposed deal to release more of the Israeli hostages they're holding. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has just landed in Tel Aviv. What we are hearing from the region next. This
0: podcast is supported by Sleep Number. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, lately we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern.
2: That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would
9: make me very concerned.
0: Listen to Chasing Life, wherever you get your podcasts.
9: Together with Qatar and
10: Egypt, we put forward, as you know, a serious proposal that was aimed at not simply repeating the previous agreement, but expanding it. Uh, As the prime minister just said, Hamas responded tonight. We're reviewing that response now.
1: That was U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken earlier today on the latest attempt to broker at least some sort of pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas when it comes to remaining hostages in Gaza. The government of Israel says they believe about 100 hostages are alive and about 30 are believed to have been killed. Let's get right to CNN's Nick Robertson in Tel Aviv and Nick, President Biden characterized Hamas's response to this offer, this, this pause and uh, release of hostages as quote, over the top. Um, what do we know?
11: Yeah, other U.S. officials are saying positive response and reasonable. The Qataris said it was also positive, but uh, they clearly indicated it wasn't a straight up and down yes/no answer. Uh, Hamas themselves, in their own statement, not detailing what they're actually put in that proposal, but saying they have responded positively, but still talking about the items that are so far way beyond reach of the scope of the deal, which is a complete ceasefire and the handing back of all their uh, of all their prisoners. This is the sort of language they're still using. But we don't know what precisely they've said. We know Mossad is evaluating uh, this uh, right, uh, uh, evaluating Hamas's response right now. But I think let's break it down for a second. I mean, let's look at the timing of Hamas's response. We now know that it came literally an hour uh, into the hands of the Qataris, an hour before uh, the Emir sat down with Secretary Blinken. So the timing of all this by Hamas, they've had over a week to respond. Everyone's been waiting for a week uh, and they're doing this now, knowing that they're putting it right on Secretary Blinken's plate as he lands here uh, and has his meetings with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu and others in the government tomorrow. So it's really, the timing here is, is got, is, is Hamas and it's under their sort of uh, control and aegis that part of it but um, you know the Secretary of State uh, as he arrives here right now is is faced with this huge challenge um, prime Minister Netanyahu has indicated is not going to go along with what with what Hamas appears still to be asking for is gov- members of his right-wing government have said that they would that they would leave the government break the government so uh, it ha- it's hard to see where the compromises are going to come so why is the language positive we don't know because we don't know what's in the details
1: All right, Nick Robertson in Israel, as we saw Secretary Blinken getting off the plane and getting into the limo uh, while he was speaking. Coming up next hour on The Lead, I'm going to talk to the father of Emily Hand. You might remember Emily. She's the nine-year-old who was kidnapped and spent seven weeks as a hostage of Hamas. Uh, We're going to talk to him about what he makes uh, of the counteroffer by Hamas coming up. But first, the guilty verdict. Just hours ago against Jennifer Crumbly, she's the mother of a school shooter in Michigan, the precedent that this case and this verdict could set in a nation facing the constant ring of mass shootings. Stay with us. In our Law and Justice League today, an unprecedented guilty verdict. A Michigan jury today convicted Jennifer Crumbly on all four counts of involuntary manslaughter, one for each of the Oxford High School students her son killed in 2021. Their names Madison Baldwin, Tate Meir, Justin Schilling, and Hannah St. Juliana. To be clear, no one is alleging that Jennifer Crumbly knew of her son's shooting plan ahead of time. The case instead relies on accusations of negligent parenting and irresponsible household gun ownership. Today's verdict marks the first time that the parent of a mass shooter in the United States has been held legally accountable for their child's deadly actions. Let's bring in trial attorney Misty Maris. Misty Gutowski, a senior contributor and founder and editor of The Reload. Misty, I want to play some sound from the jury for person who was asked what stuck in the deliberations. Take a listen.
8: The thing that really hammered it home is that she was the last adult with the gun.
1: What is your reaction?
12: So this was a huge issue in the case, Jake. It relates to who was responsible for the maintenance and for the safety and for the keeping of the gun out of the hands of a minor. Now, Jennifer Crumbly was the last person to have access to that gun. This makes sense that this was a central issue to the jury during deliberations. There was a specific question relating to how ethan crumbly got the gun the jury asked can they draw an inference that the prosecution did not put forth any evidence as to how the shooter actually gained access and the judge of course said you have to base this off the evidence of the courtroom so we know that that was a central issue to the jury and certainly something that seems to have swung uh the day in the prosecution's favor
1: Steven, do you think this verdict will change how gun owners care for their firearms in homes where there are children present?
13: It could, but I guess one of the difficulties there is if you're not already securing firearms when you have children present, given the immense risk of doing that, uh, I don't know if a a court ruling in another state where you are affecting somebody else is gonna change your mind and make you more responsible.
1: Misty, the next trial up will be for the shooter's father, James Crumbly. Do you see a similar outcome for him?
12: Well, it will be a whole new trial. There could be different evidentiary decisions, but the trials are going to have the same nucleus of facts. And we know that the trials were separated specifically because James Crumbly was the one who actually purchased the gun for his son, the gun that was used in the shooting. So seemingly there's going to be additional arguments relating to his responsibilities with the gun. In Jennifer Crumbly's case, that was a large part of the defense, was pointing the finger at her husband. Clearly that was not successful ultimately, but with respect to James Crumbly, there's additional arguments that put the gun within his uh, control as far as gun safety and keeping out of the hands of his child.
1: So Stephen, you're skeptical and I certainly understand your argument that this is gonna change individual parents' behavior necessarily because if they're not already concerned about keeping their guns secure, what, you know, why would this uh, cause them to? What about legislators? Do you think this might put pressure on states to pass or enforce uh, safe storage laws, red flag laws, et cetera, to ensure that kids don't get guns Uh,
13: it certainly could Uh, although honestly i would think it would probably perhaps lead to more pressure on prosecutors to try and bring cases like this against other parents Um, you know obviously it's a very high profile case with a very interesting set of facts a very unique set of facts including that the meeting the morning of the shooting where nobody took action Um, you know there may be a lot of the outcome may be tied up in the individual facts here uh, rather than a broad approach, but, but I don't know. I mean, that, that's where I would see potentially a lot of change coming is from some prosecutors who will feel emboldened to go after these sorts of cases in the future.
1: Interesting, Stephen Gutowski, Misty Maris, thanks to both of you for your expertise, appreciate it. Coming up next, the popular all over the map series from our own CNN's John King, what Republican voters in South Carolina told him about their support for Donald Trump and for Nikki Haley, ahead of this month's primary contest in the Palmetto State, stay with us. We are back with our 2024 lead. Cue the sweet sounds of our election music, please. Yes. With just 18 days until the South Carolina GOP primary, CNN's John King has been on the ground in the Palmetto State talking to voters. People there have lived under both a Nikki Haley governorship and a Donald
10: Trump presidency. And here's how some are weighing this choice. Hartsville is two hours inland from the coast. Billy Pierce, here for 70 years except for a stint in the Navy, is another piece of the Trump comeback puzzle. The four years he was president. How was your life?
11: Better. Definitely better. We didn't have the high inflation. We didn't have the high interest rates.
10: Not an election denier. Not a fan of the toxic tone.
11: He'd have just shut up and, you know, got off of Twitter and that kind of stuff. He'd have made a great president.
10: His 2016 and 2020 votes for Trump track his 1992 vote for Ross Perot.
11: I wanted a non-career politician in there that would do, would run it like a company. Run this place like a company, like a CEO.
10: Pierce calls himself likely Trump in the primary. The border is his top issue. Shut it down. And on that, he trusts Trump more than Haley.
11: He's going in to fix the things I need him to fix. I have no problem, to be honest with you, I have no problem with putting up two r- rows and mining the other. So if they come in, you tell them it's mine, you put signs out there say it's mine.
10: Like many voters drawn to Trump back in 2016, Craig Thomas wanted to send Washington a message.
11: It was like, all right, like, this
5: is good. Let's blow some things up.
10: Now he's voting for Haley to send his children a message.
5: I don't think there's any sort of crazy you know, conspiracy between the NFL and Taylor Swift and everything else just showing up for a Biden coronation.
10: <laughs> to end, Thomas hopes awkward conversations after his teenage daughter gets home from the stables.
5: How do I look at my daughter, who is a huge Taylor Swift fan, and this guy's just attacking Taylor Swift for, just because she's gonna support another candidate, right? Um, and other things like that. And so having those conversations, you know, With them, it, it, it does matter, and it does you know, matter with who you support. Charleston is rich with
10: revolutionary and Civil War history. It is more affluent, more educated, less Trumpy than most of the state.
5: But there is quite a bit of talk about Trump, um, even here.
10: And, Jake, that last part there from Craig Thomas' is instructive, quite a lot of talk about Trump, even in Charleston. Trump carried all but two of South Carolina's 46 counties eight years ago in the South Carolina primary. Marco Rubio carried the other two. That there's a lot of Trump talk in Charleston really underscores Haley's problem. Yes, it is her home state, but it is very much Trump's parties, Jake. She last ran in 2014. Trump has won South Carolina three times since then, the 2016 primary, the 2016 general election, and the 20 general 2020 general election. So there is a lot of wind. It's her state, but the wind is in her face.
1: All right, John King, thanks so much. On the floor of the House of Representatives right now in Washington, D.C., debate ahead of a major vote. Republicans are pushing to impeach the Homeland Security Secretary, Alejandro Mayorkas. That is expected to happen in the next hour. The case Republicans are trying to make to take this route, that's next.
13: The case for impeachment, they failed to articulate
1: Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. A lot going on this hour. Right now a floor debate in the U.S. House of Representatives ahead of a significant vote pushed by House Republicans whether or not to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas which could make him the first cabinet official impeached in nearly 150 years since War Secretary William Belknap in 1876. That was for corruption and the U.S. Senate ultimately acquitted Belknap which is almost certainly to happen again with Mayorkas, an acquittal, with Democrats controlling the Senate chamber. Also this hour, the counteroffer for a hostage deal from the terrorist group Hamas, which is calling for a complete ceasefire. I'm going to get the reaction from the father of nine-year-old Emily, Hand. she spent nearly two months in Hamas captivity. And leading this hour, the major ruling earlier today from a three-judge appeals court panel agreeing that Donald Trump is not immune from prosecution for alleged crimes he may have committed when he was president and giving Trump's team until only February 12th, Monday, to file emergency action with the US Supreme Court if they want to appeal. Let's get straight to CNN's Caitlin Collins. And Caitlin, this was more than just a a denial of Donald Trump's legal arguments. It was the judges unanimously rejecting and repudiating Donald Trump's actions around January 6th.
14: Yeah. I mean, they said it could be criminal. Now, Jake, they noted all of this is what's laid out in the indictment from Jack Smith. So they use the word allegations and allegedly a lot in here. But but these judges get into what is at the heart of that indictment, what Trump is saying that he is immune from prosecution from. And they're saying that, you know, if he did what he's alleged to have done, that, that he was inserting himself into a process where a president has no role, the counting and certifying of the Electoral College votes. And they say that that would undermine constitutionally established procedures laid out for the Congress. And in addition to that, Jake, you know, their scathing uh, argument about what his actions are around January 6th, they also reject every single argument that his attorney made in front of them that day. Of course, we listened to it live as his attorney was in front of these three judges, and they basically say that that all of these arguments are wrong. They almost kind of, you know, they say that they misread past rulings. They say the idea that because he was impeached by the House and then acquitted in the Senate and that that would qualify as double jeopardy here, uh, I mean, they seem to just outright dismiss And the claim that also that this would have a chilling effect on future presidents if Trump was not immune from this prosecution, they say actually it's the reverse that is more dangerous, the idea that that a president is immune from everything. And one part they referenced, Jake, that stood out to me is what's known as the take care clause. It's that the president is supposed to make sure that the laws of this nation are faithfully executed. And they say it would be essentially quite the paradox if the one person whose task that is, whose job that is, would then be immune from following those laws. Mm
1: -hmm. What's been the reaction from Trump world?
14: They're not surprised. They did not think that they were going to get a ruling in their favor from these judges. I mean, they listened and they saw their attorney go in front of them just as the rest of us did. I think what's surprising to them, Jake, though, is the timing here. Because as important as the substance of this ruling is the timing that they gave the Trump legal team. And that is until next Monday, to file an emergency request with the Supreme Court that would effectively pause this decision by this appeals court, and then it would be up to the Supreme Court to decide, do they take this up? What do they do? Do they hold a lot of the timing in their hands? If that doesn't happen, Jake, and if it does go back to just this court, then we could see Judge Chutkin moving ahead with this case, potentially. That's a lot of unknowns, but in the next two weeks, we could find out a lot about when this case could potentially happen.
1: Does the Trump team think that the U.S. Supreme Court is going to get involved?
14: They're hopeful. Does that mean that they think the U.S. Supreme Court is going to rule in Trump's favor? I mean, I think the question is what arguments do they make before the Supreme Court is really what's key here, Jake, because his attorney can't go and make all the arguments that he just made here that were outright rejected by these three judges. I think that we've talked to a lot of sources today who've said it would be surprising if, you know, an opinion that was so carefully written, a ruling that was so carefully written, was just outright rejected by the Supreme Court. We'll see. But, but I think there is a lot of hesitation about, ultimately, if the Supreme Court does take this up, how they would rule.
1: They only need, the Trump team people only need four of the uh, nine justices to say they want to hear the case in order for that to happen. They don't need a majority. Uh, The question is, of course, are there four? Um, Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. Turning to our politics lead and the border battle taking place right now on Capitol Hill. The Senate's bipartisan border bill legislation uh, appears on the verge of collapse. This is a bill that Republicans in the Senate had demanded and nearly embraced until former President Trump spoke out against it. That essentially keeps the status quo at the border, giving Trump a campaign issue he can use against President Biden, he hopes. Later this hour, the House is also gonna vote on whether to impeach the U.S. Homeland Security Secretary, Alejandro Mayorkas, if successful this would be the first time in nearly 150 years that a U.S. cabinet official was impeached. Republicans say this is about Mayorkas refusing to enforce border laws. That's a charge that Mayorkas and the White House dispute. All of it, of course, creates quite the sense of political dissonance and no solution for the border communities or those experiencing the crisis elsewhere in the country. Joining us now, the mayor of El Paso, Texas, Oscar Leeser, El Paso, of course, runs along the U.S. Mexico border. Uh, Mayor Lisa, there are several Republican congressmen from Texas uh, who have come out against the Senate bipartisan border bill. Here's one of them, Congressman Chip Roy, a Republican from Texas, telling CNN's Caitlin Collins that Trump's influence was not a factor in his decision to oppose the bill. Take a listen. I'm not. Waiting for him to tell me what to do. I'm in Texas. I need a solution now. This bill would not be a solution. It would actually make it worse by cementing uh, uh, the bad policies into law.
15: What is your response, Mayor? You know, it's really important that this is a bipartisan bill, and it's you know, it's long overdue, and it's something that, if you look at this uh, immigration policies, immigration law that's been broken, has been like this last time it was reformed was 27 years ago so it's time we start moving forward now if you look at the bill and and you read the bill the 20 billion dollars helps us with securing the border continuing to have more border patrol agents more customs agents but at the end of the day it didn't fix the root of the problem which is what we need to continue to work on but this is really something if we continue to stay status quo nothing will change it's time that really, it's about time that we did have a bipartisan bill that's going to really help us create for something for our asylum seekers and continue to, to work with them. You know, if you look at it, it uh, the process is a little tougher. I, I get it. But also, but once it, the process, they go through the process, they'll be able to, to work immediately. And that's something that we've been asking for as uh, border leaders. So, you know, we understand, we, we're here day in and day out, and we understand what needs to be done. And at the end of the day, having a bipartisan bill that addresses a lot of the Mm -hmm. things that need to, we know it's a Band-Aid, I get it, it's a Band-Aid, but yet at the end of the day, we need to move forward so we can fix and then go to the root of the problem. So Mr.
1: Mayor, El El Paso is, I don't need to tell you, is one of the many border cities that directly deals with the constant influx of migrants. Um, Do you think this bill would help ease whatever pressure you're experiencing on social services and law enforcement and housing and everything else in El Paso?
15: Well, one of the things we've been very lucky here at El Paso, we've really had great support from the federal government. Secretary Mayorkas has really given us the funding and the tools we need to continue to move forward. We have been able to, we don't have people out on the street right now. We had at one point over almost 3000 people coming in daily. You know, our average right now for the year We're somewhere a little over four, 450. So we've had the tools to continue to work when we are at over 3000. But yes, this bill will continue to give us those resources we need to continue to treat people, human, the way we need to treat people and the way we wanna be treated.
1: What do you make of the Republican argument that President Biden right now has the power to shut down the border if he wants, uh, and he's just not doing that? Uh, And so this legislation uh, is not really needed, and, and also a lot of Republicans might say, you know, if President Biden already has the power to do this and he's still not doing it, why do we need legislation anyway? They just have a mistrust of the process.
15: Well, we need to continue to work together, and, you know, does the president have the opportunity to do that? Yes, but do we need to make sure that we work as a country and that we work together it's really important. So again, I go back to what I was start saying was we need a bipartisan bill that keeps our country and we put our country first. And that's something that's really important. Let's put our country first and not a party.
1: There's clearly still so much division about how to fix the country's immigration policies. If Congress cannot get it together, do you see Texas Governor Greg Abbott uh, doing more to increase his efforts? He's defying uh, the U.S. Supreme Court He's defying the federal government and, and taking the issue further into into the state of Texas's hands. Do you, do you see that as the future, potentially?
15: No, the, the future is, again, like you said when you were talking to us now, that we need to unite our country. We need to start speaking with one voice. And that's going to be really important. And like I said, we've had such support from the federal government, Secretary of Majorca, that we've been able to provide a service for our asylum seekers. We, they're not on the street today. They're They have a roof over their head, they have warm meals, and then we're able to help them get to their final destination wherever they wanna go. That could not have been possible without the help of the federal government. We're, if if you look at 99% of the people that come to El Paso are not coming to El Paso, they're coming to the United States. So it's important that we have the resources to be able to help them, but also the, the resources to help our community because you can't put it on the back of the local taxpayers, that's an impossibility. So it's been really something that we need to continue to work as one and unite our voice. If we unite our voice, we'll get a lot further.
1: Mayor Oscar Lisa of El Paso, Texas, thank you so much for your time. Breaking news on Capitol Hill right now, the House is getting closer to a vote this hour uh, that could lead to the impeachment of the first cabinet secretary in nearly 150 years in action that will more than likely go absolutely nowhere in the U.S. Senate where there's no appetite or little appetite, I should say, to impeach Secretary Mayorkas. So why go forward with it? Well, a House Republican Republican will join me next. No to moving forward. Any moment now, the U.S. House of Representatives is set to vote on impeaching Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. And now senior House Republicans are growing worried that the effort might not actually pass as 11th hour absences and defections pop up. Let's bring in Republican Congressman tony gonzalez from texas Uh, congressman let's start with the vote to impeach the secretary of the department of homeland security mayorkas it's going to take place in a matter of minutes there are are a world of critics even conservatives who say house republicans are turning policy disagreement into impeachment again i've asked this of other house republicans what is the high crime and or misdemeanor here and are you at all concerned um about democrats doing this to the next Republican president's cabinet officials because they don't like how they interpret the law.
4: Uh, first off, thanks for having me on, Jake. And yeah, of course, Democrats are going to use this exact same technique. It's, what's, it's what happens in Washington. Round and round we go. Uh, but what has he done? He's gotten, uh, what has Secretary Mayorkas done to deserve to be impeached? He's gotten Americans killed. Just ask the Tambunga family that had to bury their grandmother and seven-year-old daughter. And, and we've had enough. Uh, and America wants a change, Jake, whether it's impeachment, whether it's resign, whether it's policy changes. It's very clear that whatever the Biden administration is currently doing is not working. People are dying with due to fentanyl. The the amount of folks on the terrorist watch list are coming over. I mean, we have had enough. And so it's time for the House of Republicans to come together and impeach Secretary Mayorkas. Well, with all due respect, sir, um People died as a
1: result of undocumented immigrants who then committed illegal activities during the previous president as well. People died because of the fentanyl crisis under the previous president as well. And I don't recall, I mean, I'm not saying that both uh, administrations had the same treatment of the border, but I don't recall anybody on the Republican party blaming those deaths on Donald Trump or his secretary of Homeland Security.
4: You know what, Jake, it's never been like this. A district like mine, two thirds of the Texas-Mexico border, illegal immigration is not a new topic to us. We've seen it under every administration, but we've never seen it like this. And it's, it's going the wrong direction. Every year it keeps getting worse. You think it's, you've hit the bottom. What is, what is this year going to look like? If, if President Biden gets reelected again, what does three years from now look like? Something has to change. And this is House Republicans standing up and saying that change needs to start with Secretary Mayorkas, not end, start with, with uh, replacing Secretary Mayorkas. Well, let's
1: talk about uh, the bipartisan national security and border deal that appears to be completely falling apart in the U.S. Senate right now. House Speaker Mike Johnson called the bill dead on arrival. The National Border Patrol Council, and you know these people, this is the Border Patrol Union, they're backing this bill. They say, quote, while not perfect, the Border Act of 2024 is a step in the right direction and is uh, far better than the current status quo. I don't think I need to remind you, but just to inform our viewers, the National Border Patrol Council, conservative group, they endorsed you in 2021. They endorsed Donald Trump for president in 2020. Are they wrong?
4: I appreciate the National Border uh, Security Council's uh, you know support as far as understanding the topic. They they know it inside and out. But it's very clear that the Senate border deal is going nowhere. Heck, even even Senator Lankford, who wrote the dang bill, is is now kind of having to to, to see uh, realize that it's not going to go anywhere. I'd like to talk about what happens next, Jake. Everyone's talking about this this deal, this bill's dead. It's not going anywhere. What happens next? This is what I think happens next. I think. President Biden should look into parts of this bill that make sense, which is increasing funding for ICE and ERO, and let's turn up the amount of deportation flights for people that do not qualify for asylum. That would help. Let's surge immigration judges to the border. That would help get cases heard in days, not years. And the third part, let's get to the root of the issue. The root of the issue is the cartels. It's time for us to stop fighting one another as Americans and fight the real enemy, which is the cartels. Let's label cartels as terrorist organizations, and take the gloves off. Senator Lankford
1: uh, is backing off the bill, support for his own bill because of House Republicans and Senate Republicans walking away from it. A a number of the items you just mentioned would be included in this bill, including surging uh, asylum judges and the like to the border, making it tougher to declare asylum. The Wall Wall Street Journal editorial board, a very conservative group, they write today, quote, do Republicans want to better secure the US border or do they want to keep what has become an open sore festering for another year as an election issue, unquote. And then it goes on to say, this is the most restrictive migrant legislation in decades. If Republicans pass up this rare chance at border reform, they may not get a better one, unquote. And I have to say, as somebody who has covered this issue now for decades, and this is more conservative than any other border compromise I've ever seen. Is it more conservative than something only Republicans pass? No. But something that could get through the Senate and get to President Biden's desk? Absolutely. How do you respond to critics who look at what your party is doing and says, I I don't know that these guys actually want to solve this problem. The Border Patrol Union wants this bill. They want this bill. How can you tell them that they're wrong?
4: Well, it's pretty clear that it can't get through the Senate. And it's pretty clear that there's Democrats that aren't supporting this bill. So this bill is going nowhere fast. That shouldn't surprise you. There are a lot of people in Washington that that don't want to see any change. There there are folks, advocates on the left side that this is Christmas time for them. They love seeing people coming over. Remember, there was a member of Congress that hosted the vice president in El Paso and said, this is welcome to the new Ellis Island. So there are people that want to see this happen. On the other end, there are people that love to be able to go look at this chaos that they're providing. Meanwhile, Americans are the ones that are having to pay for this crisis. So yes, I think there is a lot of politics that are being played. I look at it through the lens of this way. bill was 370 pages long. It probably should have been 10 pages. So let's get rid of all the fat and let's find a border security bill that is meaningful, that can get through the finish line. That's what I'm committed to doing. I'm not giving up. This is what I'm committing to doing. And I'm looking forward to finding partners that ultimately do want to solve this border crisis. The fact that this bill is failing is not the
1: fault of Democrats. The fact that this bill is failing is the fault of Republicans. I mean, that's just obvious to anybody covering it, and it is the most conservative immigration bill or border bill that I've seen in this town in 25 years of covering this issue. Yeah, Jake, I just pointed- pointed Let me just ask you this. Do you deny that the reason that this is falling apart is because Donald Trump wants this as an election issue to to use as uh, a a bat to to pummel Joe Biden
4: with? Do, Do you deny that that's the reason, the root of the failure? Jake, I was pointing out that there are Senate Democrats that have come out and said that they won't support this bill. So it isn't just Republicans. And yes, there are a lot of people that don't want to see any change occur. Right? Uh, they, they want the status quo to, to, to keep going. When it comes to Donald Trump, the American people will decide in November. They want Donald Trump on the ballot. Many people want it, want a change in which the direction is going, and many people are going to vote for Donald Trump. So I think in that case. The, you know, the former president looks at it through the lens of, heck, I didn't have an immigration bill. You know, I was able to secure the border. I just all I ask is the Biden administration to Biden should think back to when he was the vice president. What did what did President Obama do? And how do, you, how do you implement some of those policies? I get it. You don't want to uh, use Trump policies? Don't use Trump policies. Use Obama policies that worked. A community like mine, we need help today. And there's, there's, some, there's things that the President Biden can absolutely enact today, like deport people that do not qualify for asylum. Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez of Texas. Good to see you, sir. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Jake. We're gonna keep watching that House floor and the impeachment vote. Also ahead, the father of Emily Hand, That nine-year-old who was kidnapped by the terrorist group Hamas and spent seven weeks as a hostage of that group. We're going to ask him what he makes of this counterproposal being offered by the terrorist group Hamas today when it comes to a ceasefire and possibly releasing even more hostages. Stay with us. Back with our world lead now. Of the 132 hostages held in Gaza, about 30 of them are believed to have been killed, their bodies still in the hands of the terrorists of Hamas, according to Israel. 110 hostages have been released so far. As the U.S., cutter and Egypt attempt to get Israel and Hamas to reach some sort of deal for the remaining hostages today, some movement but still no guarantee after U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken announced that Hamas has responded, to the latest, quote, expanded proposal. As we learn more about the hostages who have been released and their recovery, joining us now, the father of Emily Hand, Thomas Hand. You might remember nine-year-old Emily was released on November 25th after about 50 days in Hamas uh, captivity. Uh, Thomas, I can't imagine such a horrific, traumatic ordeal for such a little girl. How how is she doing today?
16: Uh, She's doing amazingly well. I guess it's the power of resilience in children. Uh, she's bounced back. Yeah.
1: You and Emily recently spoke to some Israeli media. I want to play just a short clip for our, our viewers. Um, look mm-hmm. at that beautiful little girl. Let, let, let's run the clip. She actually has code words for
16: uh, Gaza, terrorists. She has lots and lots of code words. It's, it's uh, What's uh what's Zaytim? Uh, any, any food or item that she doesn't like, she transfers that word,
1: that's her code. So I guess she doesn't like olives. Um, doesn't like olives. Doesn't like olives. Uh, why do you think um, using code words helps her?
16: Uh, I've asked her, she says she, she doesn't like using the words of hostage, terrorist, uh, yeah, all the all the
1: bad words. She doesn't want any association with it. So we're learning more about this possible new deal to get hostages out. Um, given your experience, what, what's your take? Do you think the Israeli government should do anything they can to get the remaining hostages back uh, free, or, or do you think there should be some limits to what Israel offers? What's what's your basic take on it?
16: Yeah, as a as a father. Uh, you would, you would give everything. You'd give up your own, your own life. I would have, when Emily was there, I would have happily swapped if there was a chance. I'd give up my own life.
1: Do you think that the Netanyahu government is doing enough? Are they focused enough? I've seen protests in the streets. The hostage families are basically a movement in Israel uh, pressuring the Netanyahu government. What, what do you think?
16: Uh, to be honest, I haven't seen the news in weeks. Okay. Um, there's, there's both sides to every story. The, the families will be absolutely demanding that their family back, uh, their loved ones, and they'll, they'll give anything that they can to, give them, to get them back.
1: Did Emily talk about uh, other hostages that she saw while she was being kept in captivity?
16: Um, I know she was with uh, Itai. Svirsky, she was with uh, Raya, of course, uh, Hila. Uh, she doesn't really talk about them, now. She just tells me that she was with them. Um,
1: was she treated okay when she was over there? I mean, are there, aside from the horrific act of kidnapping and the murder of her mom and all that, mm-hmm. like, which, you know, is a, is a lot, yeah. um, but how were they, to her according to what she tells you?
16: Uh, compared to other groups, she was in reasonable hands. Right, we've yeah. heard of sexual assault against some of the
1: yeah. older girls. Yeah,
16: there was, there was no beatings, there was no uh, molesting. Uh, just lack of food, lack of clean water. Uh, they weren't allowed to go to the toilet without without closing the door, they had to go to the toilet with
1: it open, Uh, no showers. What lessons have you learned from her recovery that might help other people? Um, Initially, when you
16: meet them, if you're lucky enough to get them back. um, If you have a pet, any any kind of pet, bring it along. Uh, Bring along their favorite food, favorite toys, anything to reconnect them with their previous life they've been living another life for 122 days now
1: yeah tomorrow will be four months to this day um yeah, no. you've been meeting with lawmakers that's the reason you're in washington dc tell us about those meetings and, and meetings with uh, the biden administration or anyone else uh, how are those meetings going
16: uh, very well um yeah we've been received very very well it's a, it's a combined uh, political uh, movement from the Knesset, like both sides of the house. It's a united front, which I don't think it's happened ever before. That's how committed the Israel is to getting them back.
1: And what's your response when um, you see Americans ripping down the posters mm-hmm. of hostages, Americans um, calling for a ceasefire, but not calling for the release of the hostages? What? as somebody who had a little girl um, kidnapped by Hamas, how do you react to that? I find it
16: absolutely amazing, to be honest. Um, They've been kidnapped, taken away from their families, and it's just a poster saying they're kidnapped. It's a fact, it's a statement of fact. And it's like they're, they're being denied twice uh, I, I don't understand it. I honestly don't understand the, the posters being taken down. I cannot understand that. I've tried. Believe me, I've really tried to get into the minds. I just cannot find a way to think. What, what satisfaction do you get out of it? What, what do you do?
1: What's it saying? I don't I mean, know. I can tell you what they say, but I, I, I'm not going to argue on their behalf because I think... <laughs> Absolutely inhumane. I'm so glad that your daughter is back with you. I'm so sorry that she went through what she went through. Um, uh, and I wish you guys nothing but the best and, and continued healing. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm sorry I wasn't more uh, eloquent, but- uh, perfectly eloquent. really. Perfectly eloquent. Coming up, the growing tension between Donald Trump and the Republican Party chair, Ron McDaniel, whom Trump now seems to want replaced. Stay with us. In our politics lead, trouble in MAGA paradise or trouble in charadise, take your pick. (laughs) RNC chairwoman Ronna McDaniel may not be feeling too great about job security right now as former President Trump is privately floating names to replace her. McDaniel and Trump met at Mar-a-Lago for more than two hours last night. Sources called it a cordial meeting. So what's the issue here? She's been pretty loyal to Donald Trump. Well, Donald Trump and his team apparently think that the RNC has a money problem. They're right about that. Some have also blamed McDaniel for GOP losses in 2022. I don't know about that. On Sunday, Donald Trump said this.
5: How's Ronna McDaniel doing? Uh, I think she did great when she ran Michigan for me. I think she did okay initially in the RNC. I would say right now uh, there'll probably be some changes made.
1: Let's discuss with our panel, uh, Kristen. Let me start with you. So, Ronna McDaniel has been very loyal to Donald Trump, um, which supposed is supposed to count for a lot in his <laughs> book. I mean, she's even like gone out and said that Nikki Haley doesn't have a path right. to the to you know. And but what's going on? And what does this say? Uh, about his hold on the party, that it looks like she's headed for the exits.
17: Yeah, so the thing that is, maybe this is a little inside baseball, but typically when you have the White House, the RNC or the DNC, is kind of the unofficial political arm of whoever the president is. So when she first came in as RNC chair, her job was to be loyal through and through to Donald Trump. He was the president. But once he's no longer president, then your job as the chair of the party is the party first, not any one individual, not the president, not the White House. And so her role has changed while she has been RNC chair, the exactly. nature of that job. And it means that suddenly that can read as, oh, have you been disloyal to me? And remember, for Donald Trump, there is almost no such thing as too loyal. There is always a, a sort of a s- seeking of a scapegoat or oh, you maybe have betrayed me in this way. And so she is, but in a long line of people who have been kind of thrown under the Trump bus mm. in
18: this fashion. I'm just going to say, it feels more like she's being thrown under the bus because let's be honest, 2022, he had some things to do with why. a lot why. to do with the failure. I was trying to be generous, right but sure. Not to mention- He picked a bunch of
1: candidates that had
18: no chance of winning. Right. Yeah. Not to mention, I mean, he's had- Pretty much operational control of the fundraising and the ground game coming out of the RNC. They paid for his legal fees. So the exactly. RNC. So of course they don't have a lot of money, by the way. <laughs> so it's but she is definitely the the fall person, and she was involved in the fake elector scare uh, scandal in Michigan. We heard those those phone messages that she was part of.
1: Uh, Karen, let me ask you a tough question now. Nikki Haley's sure. out there bashing uh, Donald Trump for his age and coherence, and then mm-hmm. Dean Phillips, the yeah. Democratic congressman, he's doing the same. Uh, to Biden, and he just uh, posted a clip from Biden's remarks today. Uh, Let's roll one of the clips.
2: There is some movement, and I don't wanna, I don't wanna, well, maybe choose my words. There's some movement, there's been a response from the, uh, there's been a response from the opposition, but um, yes, I'm sorry, from Hamas, but it seems to be uh, a little over the top.
1: So, you know, not as sharp as performance. Um, Phillips goes on to post uh, along with a different clip as well. Shame on all of you for pretending everything is okay. You are leading us and him into a disaster, and you damn well know it.
18: Shame on you, Dean Phillips, I'm so sick of you. Take your Republican advisor and go home. Look, that was not his best performance, however, we all remember when he was giving a press conference and you could literally see our secretary of state looking at him as he was clearly about to say something he did not want him to say. My read of that was he was also thinking as he was talking about, what can I say? What can I not a say? Very here? sensitive
1: topic. He, yes. Uh,
18: yes. And here's what I want to say, but let me not screw this up. So, I mean, come on. Look, But again, it's no secret how old both of these men are. And it's clearly i mean nikki haley had an ad out i thought it was kind of funny about grumpy old men this is going to continue to be an issue i guess the way i also look at it though is i think i'd rather have joe biden negotiating with netanyahu to get our get the hostages out than dean phillips on the phone
1: so kristen on that note of how these two men project um you pointed to a recent nbc news poll on twitter recently uh, that asks voters whom they view as more competent and efficient. Uh, 48% said Donald Trump. 32% said Joe Biden. And you said you think this is the whole ball game the difference in this number, 48% to 32%. What do you mean?
17: What I mean is that, look, take something like the economy. The economy is probably going to get better as we head toward November, right? So right now, these huge gaps that we see where Donald Trump is just, you know, cleaning Joe Biden's clock on the economy, that, that could change. This question of competence is, I think, a harder thing to change. And surely, I think Democrats are going to spend a lot of money trying to remind Americans what it was like when Donald Trump was president. So this is also a number that has plenty of room to change between now and November. But every data point I see, voters are looking for stability. They're looking for calm. They're looking for somebody to be in the control room. And if the choice is Donald Trump, who is...
1: Stability and calm.
17: I Right. I hear you. I hear you. But Joe Biden, who maybe projected that enough in 2020 but is not really projecting it now, the fact that the gap on that question is now actually skewing in Donald Trump's favor should be a huge wake-up call to Democrats that while what Dean Phillips has to say does not seem to be resonating with Democratic primary voters, Dean Phillips is not going anywhere in the Democratic primary. right. His sounding of the alarm, I don't think he's so wrong to do so for Democrats.
1: And Karen, sources tell CNN that President Biden is repeatedly asking his advisors, why are Americans continuing to not feel positive about the economy? When inflation is down, the jobs market is great, consumers are spending, advisors are cautiously telling Biden that w- something yeah. like, like Kristen said, if those, if those trend lines continue, uh, consumer sentiment will course correct. Right. Um, but do you agree that you know, it will all take care of itself? Or is there an issue here about the perception of the economy and also the perception of how much of his hands on this issue Biden has because yeah. of this perception of the competency and efficiency issue?
18: Well, I certainly think the competency conversation shifts when you have the two of them on a debate stage together, which Donald Trump has recently said he'd like to debate Joe Biden. I'd love to see the two of them. Let's have, have it. it right here on the lead. <laughs> Why not? Come
1: Donald on. Donald Trump, Joe Biden, one on one right and you're here. You're
18: willing to moderate, right, Jay? Absolutely. Oh, right now. Let's, let's do it. Right. So, that, so there's that. At the, but sure, it continues to be a problem. And one of the things I thought was really interesting was um, our own White House correspondents talking about how last week, when Biden was in Michigan, an African-American gentleman spent a half hour with him in the car and got out and said, I didn't know all these things about what Biden has done for black Americans. That continues to be a problem that is disinformation, that is a, a lack of being able to communicate with people where they are about the economy and the way that they live it.
1: Okay, so that's one Michigan voter. 50 million to go. There we go. 75 million to go. Whatever it is. It's Kristen Salty's And the debate and Karen, here. Karen Finney. And of course, we'll have the debate between Joe Biden and Donald Trump uh, coming up next. Uh, just joking. What could be a nation, what very well now could be a nationwide search for those thought to be responsible uh, for attacking New York police officers in Times Square? Police say they were migrants. They had been released from custody without bail. Why? Stay with us. In our national lead right now, one of the seven migrants accused of attacking two New York City police officers outside a migrant shelter appeared in court today. Uh, Another of the seven was not charged and the other five, well, police are still trying to track them down after they were released from custody without bail. A decision by Manhattan's district attorney that has drawn scrutiny from the state's governor. CNN's John Miller is with me. John, are police confident they can track down everyone involved in this attack?
9: Well, they're still working on identifying and bringing charges against people who were on that video who they have not yet identified, but you know, four of these suspects who were released on their own recognizance, including more than one who had, who were out on supervised release from other charges at the time they were arrested here, um, NYPD detectives believe boarded a bus last week headed for the Mexican border, and they don't have a very high level of confidence that if they made it to the border, they're actually going to get them back. So the question is, are they even allowed to go looking for them? Since they were released on their own recognizance, as long as they show up in court on March 4th, so far they haven't broken a law. So police are a little hamstrung about being able to chase them. John, uh, in a separate um, but
1: not unrelated incident, um, the NYPD arrested at least seven migrants connected to more than 60 robberies across New York City. Tell us more about that.
9: So this is a really interesting case. This is, uh, you know, uh, like Fagan and the Artful Dodger. There's an individual charged in that case named Victor Para, who allegedly ran a communications uh, network where he would put out the word that he was looking for phones, that groups of people would get on scooters. The driver of the scooter would get a hundred bucks, and the snatcher, the guy who got off the the back and would grab the phone, Uh, would get $600 and they would turn in all the phones they collected to this individual. Now here's a piece of video where they grab a phone from a woman, she is dragged down the street and ends up you know hitting a a bicycle hookup on the sidewalk uh, with a lot of force. And this was making them thousands of dollars. Para allegedly had a tech guy who would do two things. One, he'd break into the phone get all the financial information and then try to steal the phone owner's money out of accounts, and two, clean out the phone and give it to Para, who allegedly would send them down to South America for resale. So he was not only robbing the victims of their phones, but trying to steal their money and then selling their phones out of the country. Um, A number of those people are now in custody. They're still hunting for the mastermind, Para. John Miller, thanks so much. Appreciate it. We're keeping an eye
1: on the House floor soon. We expect the vote to possibly impeach the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas. We're going to bring you that live. Plus, see the rather small but critical plane bolt that led to that gaping hole in the side of that Alaska Airlines flight. Stay with us. Now we have some breaking news for you now. Special counsel Robert Herr is expected to release his report in the coming days, finishing his investigation into President Biden's handling of classified documents. That's according to sources who say that the report is expected to go into significant detail about what the special counsel's team found. CNN has previously reported that special counsel hur is not planning to bring any criminal charges. In our national lead, new findings in the investigation into why a panel called a door plug blew off an Alaska Airlines Boeing 737 mid-flight last month. Federal investigators say at least three of the four bolts that were supposed to be holding the door plug in place were missing when the plane left a Boeing factory late last year. Here's CNN's Montine with a quick look at how these bolts were supposed to work.
4: This is the actual type of bolt. This is an AN6 bolt, pretty common in aviation. This is the bolt itself. There's a castle nut here and then a cotter pin to keep this all together. At one point, there was some conjecture that maybe the cotter pin was missing that would cause this castle nut to uh, work itself free. In actuality, the NTSB says none of these bolts were in place at the time of this blowout last
1: month. Boeing says it is taking steps to make sure this doesn't happen again. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow.
0: When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep Next Level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store.